Amen, amen. Thank you. You can have a seat. Again, uh, if you weren't here earlier, my name is Travis. Uh, I am the pastor here, and it is great to be worshiping with you today on Mother's Day. Again, happy Mother's Day, moms. We love you. You're amazing. You're awesome. Uh, but thank you for celebrating with us. And I just want to say real quick before we get started, I didn't say this earlier, but if it is your first time, uh, we just want to say a special welcome to you. We are we are thrilled and excited that you are our guest today, and, and we want to show you uh, a bunch of love and appreciation just to, to show our gratitude towards you. So if you wouldn't mind, before you stop, uh, before you head home, if you want to stop and buy our welcome table, it's right out here as you go back out into the hall. We have a free gift that we'd love to put in your hands today. There's also these little welcome cards. If you don't mind filling one of those out, um, that those come back to me and that just gives me a chance to reach out and say thank you so much for your visit. So if you give me that opportunity, I would really appreciate that. And I know some of you might be here uh, because of the dedication, being with your family or just because it's Mother's Day, going to church with your family. I just want to say, if you don't have a church home, you're always welcome here at Haynes Creek. So again, thank you for joining us. And we're gonna, we're gonna do what we've been doing for the last few weeks. We uh, are walking verse by verse through the Old Testament book of Ruth. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Ruth chapter three. We're gonna, we're gonna go through the whole chapter, chapter three. And some of the people here are like, oh man, y'all better buckle up, strap in. We're gonna be here for a while. I'll do my best. No promises though. Uh, but Ruth chapter three, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles again at that table out there. We'd love to give that as our gift to you, but you can always follow along on the screen right here. All the verses will be up here for you to follow along with us. So Ruth chapter three. Now, as, as you're turning, I just want to tell you, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, my wife and I, we, we went out for, for breakfast on Saturday morning and, and our kids were at my mom's house. My, my mom and Saturday, they kept the kids overnight. They were watching them. So they spent the night at Nana and Papa's house and, and Kendra had some, some time just without kids. We were like, hey, let's, let's, go, let's go get breakfast. And we've been hearing about this place and it's in Lawrenceville and it's this place called The Little Barn. Little barn. It, it literally is just a, a little barn on a street. It's this little red barn. And like, man, people, people rave about it. They act like this is the, the greatest breakfast place in the world. And it's not even like you go in and sit down. It's just drive through. And they have the supposed like the word is like they just have these, these amazing biscuits and, and breakfast food. And it's just incredible. And it's awesome. And, and we've never been. So we we're like, hey, let, let's go check it out. Everybody talks about it. It's got amazing, wonderful, great reviews. Everybody loves it. I mean, I've driven past it and like the, the drive through line is like wrapped around the building and out into the main street. Like it's just chaos, especially on a Saturday morning. So, so we go and sure enough, yeah, the line is long. There's people there. Everybody's and stuff. So, so I get this, this breakfast sandwich, this breakfast, a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit. I'm, I'm just excited to tear into that. Man, I've heard so many good things about it. So we, so we, we park, we, we start to eat. I take a bite, expecting this to just be amazing and wonderful and incredible. And it was all right. It was fine. You know, it was fine. I, I'm, I'm being generous. It was not very good. All right, let me just be honest with y'all. It was not very good. This place got so hyped up. Everybody loved it. So my expectations were high and man, I was sorely disappointed. Have you guys ever had that experience where you go maybe somewhere, something, everybody's talking about how awesome and amazing it is and you go and you're like, yeah, I guess it was all right. I mean, that's fine, right? So we have these expectations and then things don't always work out as we thought, right? Isn't that life in general? Like we think things are gonna happen. We have these expectations and then man, it just doesn't go the way we thought. Well, that is the entirety of the book of Ruth. Like nothing is happening the way that we think. Or if you've been tracking with us, this will just be a little bit of a reminder, but if, if you're new or haven't journeyed through us with this book, it, the book of Ruth starts out and things seem great, right? It zooms in on this, this family, Naomi and Elimelech, and they've got two sons, and then their two sons eventually marry two women with Ruth being one of those. And, and you think this is gonna be this, this happy story of this family from Bethlehem, but man, tragedy strikes in the very first verses of the book of Ruth. We see that they have to leave their hometown in Bethlehem and have to go to Moab because of a famine. There's no food anywhere. So they had to go someplace where there was food. And then, and then when they get to Moab, things get even worse. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, like dies. 
And then years later, her two sons die. And there's just so much, like automatically, like, man, what, what is going on here? And Naomi makes her way back to Bethlehem. And Ruth decides to go with her. That This Moabite widow decides to go back to Jerusalem and commit herself to Naomi and her people. And the rest of the book of Ruth is about Naomi and Ruth kind of navigating these waters. So we end chapter one and things look bleak, but we find out they, they come back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest season. And we see in the harvest as Ruth goes out to glean in the fields and gather grain, she, she meets this wonderful, amazing guy named Boaz. And we're told that he's this, this awesome, prominent man in, in, in the area. And he's, he's great. He's wonderful. He's, he's a man of noble character. He's a good dude. So automatically, I know some of us are, are hearing that. We're seeing that, oh, this, this single woman, Ruth, who just lost her husband. And then here's this amazing guy that just, just, just so happens to meet her. Wow, this is, this is incredible, right? Surely something's going to happen here. And then we see in, in, in Ruth, chapter two, where they do meet and they connect and they're talking and, and Boaz really is this awesome guy and takes care of Ruth and provides for her and lets her gather far more grain than she could gather anywhere else. But at the end of chapter two, we're, we're left in Ruth being in the same exact position that she was when she came to Bethlehem, a widow. And not just any widow, a, a foreign widow. She is at the bottom of society. But then things change again and turn again in chapter three. So let's, let's dig in and find out what happens next. So we end chapter two with Ruth gathering in the fields of Boaz throughout the harvest season, which would have been about six to seven weeks. So by the time we get to Ruth chapter three, verse one, about six to seven weeks have passed since we left them in Ruth chapter two. So here's what happens. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfumed oil and wear your best clothes. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he is lying in and go uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. Okay, let's pause there. What is going on with this? There's a threshing floor. There's, there's, there's uncovering feet. And what, what's happening here? So it starts out with, with Naomi saying, shouldn't I find rest for you? Now we're going to come back to what that means. But what she's saying here is I should try to help you find a husband. I need to help you find a husband. That's what is symbolized here with rest. He, she is trying to find Ruth a husband. This is the way that she is going to be taken care of in this male-dominated society. Again, she is a widow. She's a foreign widow. She has zero rights. And she is at the bottom of anybody's list of who to marry. When you're looking at prospective people to marry, a foreign widow who has been childless for 10 years is not at the top of the line in this society where children are prized and men are prized. So right away, Ruth has got a bunch of strikes against her. So here's Naomi going, shouldn't I try to find rest for you? Shouldn't I try to find a husband for you. So we're going to come back to that idea of rest in a minute. So put a pin there. We're going to come back to that. But what we see here is a little bit of a role reversal. So if you've been tracking with us, what we see in chapter one is Ruth commit herself to Naomi. She's like, I'm, I'm with you. I'm following you. Your people are my people. Your God's my God. I'm with you to the end, Naomi. Where you go, I go. Where you die, I die. She has committed to take care of Naomi. And that's why in chapter two, she goes out to glean and gather grain. They don't have any food. They've got no hope of any food unless they go out and find it themselves. And Naomi is just too overcome with her grief, which is totally understandable. She's lost her husband and both her sons. She feels like her life is over. 
But Ruth takes it upon herself to care for Naomi. And now we see a little bit of a role reversal. Now Naomi is taking care of Ruth. She knows that she's older than Ruth and she will eventually die. And Ruth will be left by herself in a foreign country with nobody. So now she's taking it upon herself. Let me take care of you. Let me find rest for you. Let me find security and safety for you long term. So that's what's going on here. And now she hatches this plan to do exactly that. So here's, here's her plan. Here's her plan. Ruth, first of all, I want you to wash up, put some perfume on and, and put your nice clothes on, all right? So it seems like she's getting her ready for a date. Like, which, which, you know, if you're trying to impress somebody, you probably should take a shower, right? You probably should put on some clean clothes. You probably should smell nice, but there's more going on under the surface than just that. What she says, when she says, put on your best clothes, what she's saying here is stop wearing the widow garments. So in this society, a widow would wear certain garments that let people know that they're in mourning, that they're a widow, and that they're in that segment of society. So they dress in a certain way that everybody knew, okay, there's the widows, there's who's still in mourning. So when she says, put on your best clothes, what she's telling Ruth is your time of mourning has come to an end. And we're gonna start moving forward. We're gonna start taking those next steps forward. And this is a big deal. Again, remember, Ruth was married to her son who died. And she's telling Ruth, no, look, it's time. It's time to move forward. It's time to move forward. Your time of widowhood is over. That's what Naomi is telling her here. So she says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to the threshing floor. You're going to find Boaz. You're going to see where he's laying down. Once he goes to sleep, you're going to go and uncover his feet. So what's going on here? Well, first of all, first of all, how did Naomi even know that he was going to be at the threshing floor? She's doing her research, y'all. She is not just coming up with this on the fly. Naomi has been hatching this plan and planning this for a while. She's been asking around, finding out, okay, where, where's Boaz? When is he using the threshing floor? Oh it's, oh, it's this night? Oh, okay, I got you. All right, I got you. And surely she's the only mother-in-law ever to meddle in somebody else's life. I'm just, I'm just kidding, y'all. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. So how did she know she's been? She's been researching. She's been planning this for a while. And she says to go in, once he's, once he's asleep, go in and uncover his feet, which was a cultural practice to basically say, uh, hey, would you marry me? Would you marry me? This is essentially putting Boaz in a position to decide, is he going to marry Ruth or not? So Naomi's kind of greasing the wheels here, kind of, kind of bringing this all to a head. Like they, they've had six to seven weeks getting to know each other, seeing what's going on. He's this family redeemer, which we'll talk about in a second. And now, now she's saying, okay, okay, Boaz, it's time to make a decision. So that's what the uncovering of the feet stand, stands for. And then she says, just do whatever Boaz says. You uncover his feet, you wait for him to wake up and just do whatever he says. Now that puts Ruth in a, in a compromising situation. If Boaz wasn't a good guy, man, this is the perfect opportunity to take advantage of Ruth in this setting. She is completely vulnerable here. So Naomi is putting a lot of trust in Boaz and what's going to happen. So this really isn't the greatest plan, right? This is not the best plan. This puts Ruth at risk. You're asking Ruth to essentially go as a woman and propose to a man, which didn't happen. And you're also asking not just a woman proposing to a man, but a younger woman proposing to somebody older or a servant, a hired hand proposing to the field owner. And not just that, she, she's not an Israelite. So she's a foreign Moabite woman proposing to an Israelite man. There's a lot of things stacked against Ruth. This plan could easily go off the tracks at any moment. But that's what we're doing here. So she puts, again, Naomi's putting a lot of trust in Boaz and ultimately a lot of trust in God to provide for Ruth here. All right, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Verse six. 
She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley, and she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. So he asked, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Okay, let's, let's pause there. What's, what's going on? So she goes to the threshing floor. She follows through with, with the plant. So what's going on with the threshing floor? We talked about a couple weeks ago, this, this idea of, of harvesting the barley and the wheat that was going on here. So at the end of harvesting, after you'd gone through the field, you cut everything down, you would bring these stacks uh, of grain to the threshing floor. And the threshing floor was usually on a hilltop somewhere. It was this, this, this room, this area with a stone floor and this either a donkey or an ox, something, some kind of animal in there. You'd take all the, the barley stalks, you'd put them on the threshing floor and this animal would just walk around in a circle, crushing all of that stuff, uh, breaking all of the stalks and the husks and everything into little pieces. And then once that was done, what you would do is you take this winnowing fork, which is kind of like a pitchfork, you take it and you toss it up in the air. You toss it up in the air. And the reason they did this at night was because the, the the winds were a little less, but it was still enough. What would happen, you'd throw that up in the air, the wind would blow what was called the chaff, the stuff that, that's unedible, that you can't eat, the part of the, the stalk and the husks, the lighter stuff, it'd blow away and the heavier grain would fall to the ground. And that's what you would, would keep as your grain. So that's what they would do. That was going on at the threshing floor. And it was also... It was also a place of, of community involvement. So the threshing floor, there wasn't just like, you know, you had a field and you had a threshing floor and this person had a field and they had a thresh floor. Typically there was a, just a couple in the area. So there was one threshing floor or a couple and, and, and everybody would use it. So you, you, again, you do it at night and then you have to sleep there because you don't want some, some rando coming up and being like, oh, here's some grain. Let me just take some grain here. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. No, you got to guard your stuff. Like this is your food. This is your hard work, your harvest. You don't want to like just walking by and taking it. So you'd have to stay there. And then because it was a, a community thing because it's the end of the harvest and people are, are happy. It's hard work. It's, it's weeks of hard work and hard labor and you're done. So it's this time of celebration. So yeah, you'd have some food, you'd have some drink, you'd throw a big party, right? Throw a big party, have a good time celebrating the harvest. Now, what that could lead to was those who were uh, a little bit looser with their morals, we'll say. All right, it could lead to some illicit behavior. It could also lead to some, some sexually immoral behavior at night as you're celebrating. You know, bad things can happen at that time. So, so that's kind of what's going on, possibly, potentially, at the threshing floor. So Ruth comes in, and Boaz is doing just that. He's celebrating, right? He's celebrating, and not in a sinful way, because that's not who Boaz is, right? That's not who we've seen him to be. He's a man of noble character. So yes, he's celebrating. Yes, he's, he's having a good time. He's eating some, some good food, having some, some good drink. And they're having a, a time of celebration. And we don't have time to get into this today, but, but what that should tell us, church, is that it's, it's good to celebrate the blessings of God, right? It's good to show our gratitude. And sometimes you just need to throw a big old party and say, thank you, Jesus. That's what we need to, and that's what Boaz is doing here. So they're celebrating, they're having a good time. The party dies down and Boaz goes to sleep. And here comes Ruth and, and she sneaks in. She sneaks in, she uncovers his feet, and she goes and, and lays down somewhere in the threshing floor. And eventually, because again, there's these night breezes, Boaz's feet gets cold, and then he wakes up and he's like, man, my feet are cold. What, what, what just happened? And there's a woman, here. What, what, what's going on? Like any of us would be startled. You wake up and there's some, some stranger sleeping near you. It's like, what are you doing? Who are you? 
Of course, that was his reaction, right? That'd be our reaction. And she says, I'm Ruth. And then, and then what Ruth does is she goes completely off script. Remember, what Naomi said was uncover his feet, wait till he wakes up, and he will tell you what to do. But Ruth, man, we've seen already, she is bold and she's going to take action steps here. So she just takes matters into her own hands and says this, I am Ruth, your servant. Take me under your wing for you are a family redeemer. Now, what Ruth just did was propose to Boaz. She just proposed to Boaz. What, what this would mean in our normal English language was, Boaz, marry me. That's what she did. And remember, again, she's a, a servant talking to the field owner. She's a foreigner talking to an Israelite. She's a woman talking to a man. And she's just like, don't care about any of that stuff. Marry me, Boaz. So she straight up asked for, that, that's what take me under your wing means. It means to, to take me into your area of, of safekeeping, of provision, of providing for me, of taking care of me. It was this, this cultural idea of saying, will you marry me? And then she says the reason. She says this, for you are a family redeemer. Now, last week, if you were with us, we, we talked about this idea of a family redeemer and that, that God set up these laws in the Old Testament where, where if a family member fell on hard times financially, had to sell off a field or maybe sell themselves into servanthood, that a family member had the right and the duty to come and redeem them, to buy them back, to buy back their land, to take care of them. So we know that Boaz is a family redeemer, but church, if you remember last week, and if you weren't here, check the podcast out. But, but if you remember what we said, we, we gave a bunch of ways that this, this family redeemer could come in and help out a family member. None of those reasons were marriage. None of those obligations were you have to marry a family member who has fallen on hard times. So Boaz here, right away, just because he's a family redeemer, doesn't mean that he has to marry Ruth. But see, what Ruth has done here, what Ruth and Naomi have done here is they've, they've combined and linked together two different sets of laws. So they, they take the family redeemer laws and they link them what is called the leveret marriage laws. So here's what, what is said about that at Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. It says this, when brothers live on the same property and one of them dies without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside of the family. Her brother-in-law is to take her as his wife, have sexual relations with her, and perform the duty of a brother-in-law for her. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So again, what that's saying is, is if your husband dies and you don't have any kids yet, it's the duty of the brother-in-law to step in, marry you, and help continue on his brother's family name and legacy. So what Ruth has done here is she's taken the family redeemer laws and what's called the leveret marriage laws, and she's linked them together. Now, that's not technically what you're supposed to do, right? Like, that's not technically what, what should have happened here. And, and also, even if she does do that, even if that's what's supposed to happen, Boaz is still under no obligation. Boaz is not Elimelech's brother. He's got no obligation to Ruth. And also Ruth, again, is a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. These laws and these practices don't apply to her. Boaz has no obligation to follow through this. But again, what we've learned about Boaz, he is a man of noble character. And Boaz knows the difference between letter of the law and spirit of the law. Letter of the law says brother and brother-in-law. Spirit of the law says take care of your family. Care for and provide for your family. Whether they're Israelite or not, take care of them. Boaz understands that. And that's why he responds favorably. Let's look at his response. Verse 10. So Ruth straight up proposes to him, goes off script, just shows her boldness yet again. And this is what Boaz says. Then he said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. 
Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer. So you think like she's going to say, I got you, girl. Like, let's do this thing. But there is a redeemer closer than I. Oh, man, really? Really? We've got to talk about somebody else? Come on now. Come on. Stay here tonight and in the morning. If he wants to redeem you, that is good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. So Boaz responds very favorably to Ruth because again, he, he knows her character. He knows what kind of woman she has proven herself to be time and time again. He knows that she's just not running around town just trying to find a husband. That's not her goal. That's not what she's doing. No, she is trying to help care for and provide for Naomi and herself. Boaz knows her heart. He knows her character. And again, Boaz shows his character in this moment too. It's just them on the threshing room floor by themselves at night. And she just straight up proposed marriage. All he had to do was say, yeah, sounds good. Let's, let's consummate this thing right now. And he could have, he could have easily taken advantage of her in this moment, but he doesn't because he has honesty and integrity. He shows it with the way he treats her. And he shows it by saying, yes, I'm a family redeemer, but there's actually a relative closer than I, and he has first dibs. And we all know the law of dibs is unbreakable. Okay. You can't break it. It is, it is immutable. So he says, there's actually a redeemer closer than I am. So we need to talk to him first. Again, Boaz is showing his honesty and integrity in this moment. But, but at the end, he says, I, I got you either way, right? Either this guy's going to redeem you or I will. Let's keep going. So this is what happens next, verse 14. So it says, stay here till morning. So verse 14, she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told her, bring the shawl that you're wearing and hold it out. When she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl and she went into the town. She went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, what happened, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. She said, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go for he won't rest until he resolves this today. So Boaz says, stay here till morning and sneak back into town. Now he's not trying to hide what happened, but, but again, what we said about Bethlehem, it's a small town and we all know everything about small towns. People talk, people talk. Once the gossip train gets going, it's hard to stop. So he knows if somebody sees Ruth sneaking away from the threshing room floor, knowing what could potentially happen at the threshing room floor, they see Ruth and Boaz there, man, they're going to make some conclusions and not some good ones, right? And the rumor mill is going to start and the gossip train gets going and Boaz doesn't want any part of that because he wants to protect his reputation and Ruth's reputation here. So that's what's going on there. And of course, of course, Boaz gives her food, right? Like this guy has shown over and over again, he is going to provide and take care of her. So of course she doesn't go home empty and he gives her grain to bring home. And she comes in and Naomi goes, what happened? Now the literal translation of the Hebrew there means, who are you? She asked, who are you, Ruth? And what she's asking there, are, are you still a widow? Or did Boaz accept the proposal? Are you the same? as when you left here, or did you come back different? That's what she's asking. Now, unfortunately, we gotta, we gotta wait until we see what actually happens. So she tells Naomi everything, and Naomi's pleased because she knows not only is Boaz a man of noble character, but he is a man of initiative. He is not gonna drag his feet and just be like, yeah, Ruth, you know, we'll figure this out at some point, right? Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll talk to that guy next time I run into him. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Well, let's, let's circle back to this in three months and we'll see where we're at, right? No, this guy's like, no, I got this today. I will take care of this today. Let's figure this out. 
So we're gonna have to wait and see what happens in chapter four. So come back next week, chapter four, we're gonna see this, this incredible end to the story of Ruth. So we're gonna finish out our series in Ruth next week. Make sure you're here for this awesome conclusion. But, but before we get there, let, let's talk about more what's going on in chapter three. And I wanna circle back to why, why Naomi did all of this to begin with. Why did she set up this wild plan of proposing to Ruth? Well, she does it to find Ruth rest. She does it to find Ruth rest. And rest is this theme that we see spoken of all throughout scripture. And when scripture talks about finding rest, it's using this as an idea of, to point to a place or a situation where you are in a place of security, of safety, of peace, of provision. So we see this spoken of all throughout the Old Testament. And one of the primary ways that we see it in the Old Testament is the land, the promised land that God gives his people Israel. When he takes them out of Egypt and he brings them to the promised land, that the land is a symbol of God's rest. That land is a symbol that God will take care of and provide for his people. This is what Exodus 33, 14 says. And he replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Deuteronomy 12.10, when you cross the Jordan and live in the land the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all the enemies around you, and you live in security. So the land was this idea, this picture of God's rest, of God's safety and security, and that he will provide and come through and be there for his people. And in the book of Ruth, rest is symbolized in a husband. And we see this all the way back in, in chapter one, verses eight and nine, where, where Naomi is leaving. She's going back to Bethlehem and, and Ruth, Ruth and her other daughter-in-law, Orpah, they are bound to her through marriage. So they're going with her. And she, try, she tries to keep them from doing that, right? She tells them, no, 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 don't, don't come with me. My hope and prayer for you is that you find rest with a new husband. Because she knows if you come back to Bethlehem, you are committing yourself to a life of singleness, loneliness, and poverty. There will be no rest for you in Bethlehem. So find rest here. Find a new source of safety and security and provision here. Ruth says, no, I'm good. I'm going with you. I'm going with you. And now we see Naomi longing for Ruth to have rest. And I'm sure Ruth felt that too. I'm sure Ruth felt that, that, that she needed and wanted rest as well. And what we see here in chapter three, not only does it point to this theme throughout scripture, it also points to things that go on in our hearts. We are people that long for and need rest. We long for the sense of security and peace in our lives. We long for the sense of, of provision. We, we search that. Even if we can't necessarily put words to it all the time, we have these longings for fulfillment and satisfaction in our lives. But here's the problem, church. Here's the problem. We search for that rest in anything and everything except for God. We search for it in, in all the wrong places all the time. So I wanna, I wanna spend some time talking about three areas where we desperately need to find rest in Jesus and not in ourselves and in this world. So first one, if you're taking notes, first place we need rest, we need rest from worry. We need rest from worry. Now I'm sure I'm talking to a bunch of people that never worry about anything in their lives, right? I'm sure that's you. Like well, who has anything to worry about these days, right? Everything's wonderful and grand and awesome all the time, right? Not always the case. We are a society and a culture, if we're honest with ourselves, that are filled with worry. We worry about all sorts of things. And here's the thing about worry. Here's the thing about worry. Worry is having this sense of this feeling of, of whether it's fear or nervousness or anxiety about something that might happen, right? 
it might happen. Because if it was happening, then we wouldn't worry. We would just be terrified. We'd be scared. We'd be frustrated. We'd be upset. Whatever other emotion that we think we're going to feel, we'd actually be feeling that. But we get worried about stuff that may or may not happen, right? That's what happens. And again, we've got no shortage of things to be worried about, right? We, if you're, you've got family members in here, you'd be worried about your family members, worried about your spouse, worried about your kids. I mean, I got three kids. I'm constantly worried about my kids, right? Constantly worried about what's going on with them, what they're going to do, who they're going to be as an adult. What might, again, what might happen to them, right? We're worried about that. We're worried about finances and economy, right? I've been being told for, for months now that eventually the economy is going to crash. It's really bad. Inflation, inflation, inflation. It's all really bad, right? Like that doesn't help ease the worry at all, right? Like just don't watch the news. That's my solution. That's probably bad. But anyways, our jobs, we can worry about our jobs. Does my boss like me? Do my coworkers like me? Am I doing a good job? Who knows? I have no idea. Don't get any feedback. I have no idea what's happening. I'm worried about that. Other people, what, what other people might think about us and what they want from us and the expectations they have. Like surely none of us deal with that, right? And let's look, the list could go on and on and on and on and on and on, right? There's no shortage of things to worry about. But here's what happens when we worry. I don't know if you've seen this in your life, seen it in mine for sure. When we worry, things don't typically get better. And I've never had this moment where I'm like, man, I'm really glad I worried about that. Huh, man, thank you, Jesus, for letting me worry and stress out about that. That's not typically what happens, right? I'm waiting for the day that that happens, but it's probably not going to happen. It doesn't usually get better. Things usually get worse for us. We get, we get more worried. We get more stressed out. We get filled with more fear and anxiety the more we worry. And that just has a whole long list of other health complications, right? Doctors tell you, man, the, the effects of stress on the body are limitless and just crazy. And your body does weird things when it's full of stress and worry and anxiety and fear and all this stuff that we stress out about in this life. So it doesn't typically get better. So the, worrying is not good. That's not a healthy practice for us. And that's not what God wants from us. God doesn't want us to live this life of worry and fear and anxiety. So look, here's the thing. We, we know, I think we know, I think we could be honest with ourselves and know that, that I shouldn't worry. That, that, that you know, I, I do need rest from my worry. I shouldn't be constantly worrying about things, but here's what happens. Here's what happens. When we seek rest from worry, we typically seek it not in God, but in our own control. When we want rest from worry, we try to find that by controlling things. So with our kids, we, we try to you know, control every environment and situation that our kids are in. We just put this huge bubble around them. We don't let them outside of that because if I can control my kids and what they do, well, then I don't have to worry anymore. Or, you know, think about your job. And if I can just, if I can just control things at my job, if I can just manipulate the situation or the people, my boss, my coworkers to get the outcome that I want, well, then I don't have to worry anymore. So we try to find rest from worry in control. But church, again, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that doesn't work because guess what? You're not in control. I'm not in control. You know, the thing that I'm constantly reminded of, nothing reminds me more of my lack of control than my kids, right? I can do, you know, check all the boxes of a parent, do all the things that all these books and blogs and podcasts say, hey, you want to have awesome kids, do these things. Okay, cool. I'll do these things. And then it just goes the exact opposite way. Maybe, maybe I'm just a terrible parent. You guys have never experienced that and you're just secretly judging me right now. That's okay. This is a safe place. I can admit that to you. We, just, we, we do whatever we can, right? And then the outcome doesn't actually always go that way. I'm constantly reminded that I have zero control in life. And yet, what do I do? I still try to find it. I still try to find that control because it makes me feel better. But it, it's fake. It's false control and it doesn't last, church. That is not where we find rest. And if we want to find rest from worry, we have to find it in the one who's actually in control. 
And that's not us. That is not you and me. That is God. What the Bible tells us over and over again is that he is in control of all things at all times. Proverbs 19, 21 says, many plans are in a person's heart. Who are my planners in here who like to plan stuff? It's okay, again, this is a safe place. It's all right, it's all right. Who likes to plan? Okay, yep, we all like to plan. Many plans are in a person's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. Not my plans, but his plans prevail because he's in control, not me. Isaiah 45, five through seven, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God but me. I will strengthen you though you do not know me so that all may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is no one but me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord who does these things. God is in control of everything. Not just what happens in this world, not just what happens with nature and the setting and the rising of the sun, whatever it is. No, he he controls everything in our lives. He is in control. We are not. Joshua 1.9 tells us this. Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Who's with us? The Lord. Those are not just empty words. We're we're going everywhere we go. God, the the creator and sustainer of everything, the one who has all power, all authority, all sovereignty goes with us. And here's what we can learn from that. We can trust him. We can trust him with our lives. We can trust him with our spouse's lives. We can trust him with our kids' lives. We can trust him with what happens at work. We can trust him with everything. He is all powerful. He is all good. He is sovereign over all things at all times. We can trust him. So if we want to find rest from our worry, we have to find it in God. We have to find it in his power and in his control. That he will always accomplish his promises. That he never leaves us. That he is always for us, church. So if we truly want to rest from our worry, it comes not from holding tighter onto our sense of control. It comes from letting go and trusting God. It comes from growing in trust and faith in our Lord God. That's where rest comes from. We have to grow in trusting in his power, in his strength, in his sovereignty, and in his timing. How about y'all, but that last one's hard. That last one's tough because I could be like, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm like, well, it's been a week. So clearly you're not doing anything. Now it's up to me. Thanks God for trying. I got this. Like how, like I say that a lot. It seems like that's so crazy, but that's what we do, right? That's what we do. We have to trust his timing church. If we want to grow in faith and trust in him, we have to also grow in our patience. We have to wait on his timing. This is what Jesus says about worry. This is in Matthew chapter six. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but it starts in verse 25. I'm just gonna read verses 31 through 34. Jesus says his words. So do not worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. I'm gonna read that again. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow 
Because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen to that. Don't worry about tomorrow. We trust in God. Look, if you're like me, Travis, how do I do that? Like, what are some action steps here? The biggest one I can give you, prayer. You want to grow in your trust in the Lord and his ways and what he has going on? Grow in your prayer time. Because here's what prayer does. Prayer reminds us that we are dependent upon God for everything. We are dependent upon him. And here's what Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says. Paul writes these words. It says, don't worry about anything. That sounds familiar. Sounds like what we just read. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How do we grow in not worrying? We bring everything, all of our troubles, all of our fears, all of our anxiety, all of the things that we stress and we worry about, and we bring them to God and we entrust those to him. He's a good God. We can trust him and depend on him. He is great and powerful and we don't have to be in control because he's in control. All right, let's, let's keep going here. Number two, number two. I need to pick up the pace here. Number two, rest from performance. Rest from performance. Another area that we need rest as a society is rest from performance. We are a performance-driven society and culture, right? It's constantly, what have you done for me lately? Good job last week, but what about now? What about now? What are you gonna do for me now? We are constantly facing a world full of demands and expectations placed on us. And all the moms in here are saying, yes, amen. I feel that, right? I feel that. We face demands and expectations all across the board, from our jobs, from our family, from our spouse, from our kids, from our friends and our family members. And we can carry this, this heavy weight and burden from all of those demands and all of those expectations. And we want to find rest from that. We need to find rest from that. But again, we don't, we don't find it in Jesus. What we do, when we want to find rest from our performance, we try to find it in the approval of other people. We try to find rest in the approval from other people. We think if I just do enough, right? If I just, if I just do a really good job, if I, just, if I just do more and I do better than these people with their demands and their expectations, they'll be satisfied, they'll be happy, they'll be content, and I will find their approval. So we try and we work and we do everything hoping that somebody will give us the approval that we so desperately long for. And we think, man, if I just get that, I'll be free and it'll all be worth it. I'll get the promotion. I'll have a great marriage. My kids will be amazing and perfect. If I just do more, if I just do better, if I just do all the things. And we put this weight on ourselves, carrying everybody's expectations and demands. And church, I'm just telling you, that is going to wear you down. You won't find rest which you will turn into eventually is just a people, per, people pleaser and just doing whatever anybody asks of you. No matter how unhealthy or unrealistic those expectations or demands might be, you'll do it because you just, you, you need that approval. You need that approval. But here's the thing. Ultimately, we know, we feel this, right? And that, that doesn't work. That's not going to give us what we actually want because here's what happens. Eventually, those people are satisfied now. Your boss might be like, oh, wow, great job. But in two weeks, what's going to happen? Hey, what are you doing now? What's going on with that other project? Yeah, it was a good job. You did a good job on that. But I'm talking about now. What are you doing now? <laughs> I don't, thought I was doing a good job. I guess not, right? So we, we eventually meet their expectations, but then those expectations just get even more. That's what happens. We just have to keep trying more and more. Instead of finding our approval in people, we need to find our approval in God. And here's what the Bible tells us is that we don't have to seek that out and we don't have to earn that, that through our faith in Jesus Christ, we always, at all times, always and forever, have the full approval of God. We have the full approval of God. 
when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to God, I don't have to prove my worth and my value. I don't have to earn my place. I don't have to to meet these, these wild and unhealthy and unrealistic expectations. I find all the approval I could ever need and want in my heart and in my life in Jesus Christ. And that never changes. That never goes away. So finding approval in God means one of the things we have to do if we're going to grow in this, we have to let go of those unhealthy and unrealistic expectations from other people. And you're thinking, Travis, I'm, that's going to make somebody mad. Yeah, it might. It might. They're going to be disappointed. Yeah, they might. But you know what? Maybe they need that so they can look in the mirror and go, I'm asking crazy stuff here and I need to stop that. But either way, whatever their reaction is, that's not on you. It will lead to a healthier life for you. We have to let go of these unrealistic and unhealthy expectations from other people. We have to free ourselves from people pleasing. You're not going to make everybody happy. So we just got to stop trying with that. You're always going to be able to, to disappoint and anger and upset somebody. So let go of those unhealthy and unrealistic expectations, right? We all have expectations and we have right expectations at times that we need to meet and live up to. That's just part of living life, right? We all have a job, we have family, kids, whatever it is. But those unhealthy and unrealistic expectations that people place on us, we got to kill those off. We got to let those go. Moms, just want you to hear this Mother's Day. Moms, free yourself from mom guilt. All right, you're doing a great job. Okay, doing a great job. Ignore those social media posts with the pretty pictures of everybody's perfect marriage and perfect kids. And they talk about how amazing everything is and how perfect and awesome it is. Look, social media is fake, y'all. It's fake. That's not real life. You don't know what happened. They could have taken that picture. Next thing you know, that kid is just slapping their mom in the face. You have no idea. Maybe that's just my family. I don't know. Maybe that's just my kids. We have no idea, right? We have no idea. What social media allows us to do is just create this false image of perfection that we display to everybody else and pretend like it's true. Let go of that. Let go of that. Free yourself from that guilt. Free yourself of feeling that you're not measuring up. You're doing a great job. All right, we love you. You're amazing. You're doing a great job. So if we want to find approval in God, it means that we have to believe what he says about us first. What does he say about us? What does scripture say about us? When we look at scripture, what God says about us, it says that we are loved, always and forever loved. He sees us for who we truly are, everything about us, all those things that we hide from other people. He sees it all and says, I love you. I love you. And I'm for you and I'm with you. It tells us that that we're his child. We're his child, which means we don't have to earn our place in his family. We have that always and forever, just like our kids, right? have to earn their keep. They don't have to earn their place. We're his child. He tells us that we're not condemned. Here's the other thing he tells us. He tells us that he actually enjoys us. He actually enjoys us. God doesn't just love you. He actually likes you. He enjoys us. That might be a crazy thought to some of y'all today, but you need to hear it. God actually enjoys you. It says this in Zephaniah 3.17. This is God's uh, disposition towards us right now. It says this, the Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. When you think about God and how he views you, that's how I want you to view him because that's true. That's how he views you right now. He is finding joy in you. He is quieting you with his love. He is delighting you with singing. Right now, God is singing over you, church. How incredible is that? Other places in scripture in the Old Testament, it's, God says that his people are his portion. What that means is, is we are his inheritance. We are the things that he treasures most. That's what our God says about us. And that's what we need to believe, church. All right, last point, and we'll end here. The last place we need to find rest is rest from our doing. Rest from our doing. Rest from 
are doing. Another thing uh, that we know about this world all too well is we're busy people, right? We're busy. Well, all of us have a lot going on. Our, our, our society, our culture is one that is just go, 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 and then go some more, right? We fill our calendars. Our kids are in a million things after school, whatever. Like we just, we fill our lives with busyness. And the thing about this part is we don't seek rest from busyness anywhere. We just accept it as our reality. Well, we're just busy, right? We're just busy. I'm just busy. And that's all there is to it. I just got, I got a lot going on. Travis, I don't know what you tell me. I just got a lot going on. I'm busy. I got these things. I got, this, I got, I got all this stuff. I'm busy. I'm busy. Church, we, we, we are not made to go, go, go. We are not made to go nonstop and work nonstop and give our everything to the doing in this life. We are not made for that. We are made with limits. We're like, Travis, limits only that. Limited is only a mindset. You just gotta push through that. No, it's a reality. It's how God made us. He made us to rest from our doing. He made us with limits. We are not made to go, 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 go. We're designed to rest and slow down from our doing. So here's some things here. Here's how we do this. One, one, we rest from our doing by remembering the Sabbath. Remembering the Sabbath. This idea of Sabbath, of resting from our work is talked about all throughout scripture. Not just an Old Testament idea. It's an Old and New Testament idea. And again, this idea of Sabbath rest is so important that God put it into the Ten Commandments, right? The top 10 things that he wanted us to know about him and how to live our lives. Resting on the Sabbath is number four. It's in the top five, y'all. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. Number four, it says this in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien who's within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Look, here's the thing. The Sabbath is how God made us. See right here, Moses and God link Sabbath with creation. Tells us that God set the pattern for our lives. He created six days and then he rested on the seventh. And look, God did not rest because he's like, whew, I'm tired, y'all. I needed a break. He's God. He has unlimited power. He does not need to rest. God did not rest because he needed a nap on the seventh day. He rested to give us a pattern for how we were to live our lives. God created us with limits. The Sabbath, practicing the Sabbath, having a day where we rest from our work reminds us of those limits, reminds us to find our rest in God. Practice the Sabbath. Jesus says this of the Sabbath in Mark 2, 27. He told them the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. What that means is the Sabbath is a gift from God. He gave it to us. And what we do with that gift is we reject it and we throw it back in his face. Now it's Mother's Day. We're just saying, you know, you, 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 get this, you give this gift to your mom or, or your spouse and you, you get exactly what they want, right? You didn't mess this one up. You got exactly what they wanted and they look at it and they go, thank you, and then throw it in the trash can. You'd be like, what's up with that? What's up? I bought that for you. You said you wanted that and I got it for you. You just threw it away. Like that's what we do with the Sabbath. God gives us this incredible gift of rest and we go, no thanks, I'm good. Vacation days, what are those? And if I go on vacation, you better believe I'm bringing my laptop and I'm doing some work. I'm making some phone calls. I'm being in that meeting. I'm, I'm making that phone call. I'll rest, what is that? No, no thanks, God. I don't want any part of that. We reject his gift. He gave that to us as a gift. We need to practice the Sabbath, church. We need to practice the Sabbath. 
find a day during the week where you rest from your doing, you rest from your work. In that resting, we, we find refreshment and enjoyment in God. Commit to rest. Find a day where you, where you put that phone away, where you close the computer. You don't answer emails. You don't answer phone calls. You put it away and you just spend time enjoying God and his many blessings. That's the thing about the Sabbath, right? We're not just supposed to sit in a dark room and not do anything like, oh, this is great, God, thanks. Just sitting here by myself in the dark. Oh, yeah, that's your idea of Sabbath? Thanks, God. This is boring. No, no, the idea of Sabbath means that we go and enjoy the blessings of God. And we celebrate the blessings of God and we show gratitude and appreciation and thanks for what he has given us. So do something fun on the Sabbath. Don't answer your emails. Put your phone away. Do something fun. Remember all that God has done for you. And the second way we practice this resting from doing, prioritize what's important. Again, we've got all these demands. We've got all these demands for our time and and requests of our time and what we're supposed to be doing. We've got all these things pulling at us. So church, what we have to do is we have to prioritize what's important, what matters most. What's the most important thing? We, we start there and then we build out our schedule from that point. And look, here's what that means. You're gonna have to say no. You're gonna have to say no sometimes. You're gonna have to say no to maybe that extra work, or that extra request. You might have to say no for your kids and say, hey, look, you can't do all the sports. Pick one right now, okay? Because I'm not gonna be out every single night of the week taking you to a million practices, all right? Pick one, okay? You'll be fine. It'll be okay. They might get mad at you. It'll be all right, parent. It'll be okay prioritize what's important. This is what Jesus wants from us. I'm going to end with this. That's not kidding. I got one more verse after that. Luke 10, 38 through 42, it says this. While they were traveling, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him. That's Jesus. Welcomed Jesus into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and he was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to give me a hand. Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. This is how you know Jesus is saying that because if any other man said that to a woman, you're getting like a chair thrown at your face, right? But Jesus, Jesus can say this kind of stuff, right? So husbands, don't be quoting this verse to your wife, right? Just that's not gonna go well. But Jesus can say this. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken from her. What Jesus is saying here is not, he's not condemning Martha necessarily. Martha's doing a great thing. She's hosting. She's providing a place for Jesus and the disciples to come and enjoy and rest and have a good meal. Like she's doing really good things. But Jesus says, those are good things, but being with me is what matters more. There's a lot of good things in this world. A lot of good things we can do with our time, but what matters most is being with Jesus. Start with that and set your schedule from there. Prioritize what matters. So we, we all long for rest, right? I think we can admit that. We all long for rest and, and we search for it in a lot, of, a lot of different ways, right? And there's these longings of our heart that long for safety and security and provision and fulfillment and peace and joy and satisfaction. And we think that we can find it here in this life. But Jesus tells us in Mark chapter eight that, that yes, you can find life here in this world. You can find those things in a limited form in this world. But ultimately what that means is you lose your life forever. If we give our lives for this world, we lose it for eternity. Jesus tells us that true rest, ultimate rest and satisfaction and peace and safety and security, it's not found in this world. It's not found in the things of this world. It's not found in our jobs. It's not found in our family or our kids or whatever we have going on. It's not found in that. It's not found in our bank accounts. It's found in Jesus. 
He calls us to find our rest in him. I promise I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually end with this verse. Jesus says this in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And maybe that's you today. You're like, yeah, Travis, I, I'm worn out. I'm worn out. I can't do anymore. I got nothing left. Here's Jesus's message to you. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Wherever you find yourself today, and if you've never put your faith in Jesus, you've never trusted in him, I mean, you've been searching, you've been longing and you found that this world is lacking, that it's limited. That's God's grace in your life. And he's telling you, come to me, come to me. So if you've never put your faith in Jesus, the message today is come to Jesus. If you have done that, man, you, you find yourself far from God right now. You have chased after the things of this world. You, you've, you've walked away from the things that Jesus has called you to. His message is the same. Come to me, come to me. That's what we need to do, church, today. Come to Jesus, find rest in him. Pray for us and we're gonna do what we do every single Sunday and that, that is step into a time of worship and communion. So in a moment, I'm gonna pray. And if you're here and you've put your faith in Jesus, that this time is for you. This time is only for those who have put our faith in Jesus. It's a time for us to center our hearts back on the Lord, to center our faith and our trust back in him, to come back to him. So church, as I pray, I want you to spend some time in prayer. Center your hearts back with Jesus. Maybe you do need to repent of some sin and, and, and just confess to the Lord, man, I, I, I've walked away. I've searched this world for things that you are the one who provides for. And I need to come back to you. I'll come back to him. Believer in the room, as you're ready, you go to either side of the room. You, you take the cup, take the bread, you eat and you drink. And we remember the sacrifice of Jesus that he gave his life for us on the cross. And again, if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus, first, I'm glad you're here. You're always welcome here. But this, this time of communion, of taking the bread and the cup, that, that, that's not for you. This is the time for us as believers to remember and celebrate what he has done in our faith in him. But I want you to hear that Jesus' message for you is to come to him. Come to him. You today can put your faith in Jesus. Today can be the day of your salvation. If you want to do that, I'll be hanging out in the back. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to walk you through what that looks like, pray with you, answer any questions you have. So I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna enter into a time of worship and communion. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for who you are and all that you've done for us. Lord, we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you, you shower on us constantly. And Lord, I thank you that you are the person that we can come to for refuge, that we can come to for rest, that we can come to for provision, for security, Lord, that we are safe and secure in your hands and in your hands alone, Jesus. That doesn't mean that this life is always easy. That doesn't mean that we'll get whatever we want, but it does mean that we're with you. And that's where true life, that's where true joy, true fulfillment is found, Jesus. Thank you for who you are and all that you've done. Lord, would you lead us to stop searching for rest and fulfillment in this world, but, but to find it in you alone, Jesus. We love you and we lift high your name today. Amen.